Welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus in a series I've entitled, Freed to Worship. Exodus describes many of the miraculous things God did to bring his chosen people out of bondage in Egypt and then to the promised land. Along the way, he revealed himself to the Israelites and taught them how to worship him. As New Testament believers, we don't follow the same pattern of worship as God instructed the Jews to worship him, but through their system, we learn a great deal about the God we worship. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Exodus, and let's explore what it means to be freed to worship. Welcome to the Wednesday night Bible study as we go through the book of Exodus. So uh, we're doing some new things. So um, I'm going to be encouraged. You're going to be patient with me. I'm using some new technology and uh, tools. And so just be patient. You can do that, right? So welcome to all of you online. Welcome to the few here. Um, We're going to start with a word of prayer and then we'll get into it heavenly father we thank you for this opportunity to gather as we get into this book that uh, talks about um, the delivery from bondage and lord how to worship you lord we want to open our hearts to do that and so we pray holy spirit come and fill us right this moment and we pray it in jesus name amen amen all right um so The title of this study is Freed to Worship through the book of Exodus. The book begins as the Israelites are um, in bondage or slavery in Egypt. And God raises up a man, Moses, to save his people. He uses him to save his people. And in chapter 5, we have the famous saying, let my people go. And we'll get to that eventually. Pharaoh refuses and God brings a series of plagues upon Egypt that concludes with the death of the firstborn. God leads the people out and into the wilderness and then he gives them the law at Mount Sinai and then ultimately he ends the book with a a pretty lengthy description of how he expects to be worshipped, how he wants to be worshipped. So turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 6. But before, you get, before we get too far into it, I want to just talk about these note sheets that you've got. And those of you who are watching online, uh, you, there's a link that you can go to that you can get the note sheets and download them and print them out for yourself. And uh, for those with the regular note sheets, we are going to open this up to questions and answers. And so I would encourage you to uh, take some time and um, if you have a question, write it down. And then we'll get, at the end of it, we'll talk about those. And um, if you're watching live, you can do that. You can ask your questions through the chat. All righty, so we're in Exodus chapter 6. There are three basic divisions of the book of Exodus. And, and we're going to see them in these three verses. These, first, these three verses we're going to look at here in Exodus chapter 6. And I suppose I got to get there. And... And um, in chapter 5, Moses had gone to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh what God said. God said, let my people go so that they can come out and worship me. And instead of letting the people go, 
um, the Pharaoh turned up the heat. He made it even more difficult for them. And, um, and Moses is, is not surprisingly surprised. I think, I think Moses was expecting that when, when he went to Pharaoh, that when he said what God told him to say, that Pharaoh would say, oh, okay. And so he was somewhat surprised. And he shares that, that confusion with God. And so God responds here in chapter 6 of Exodus, verse 6. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. The first division of the book of Exodus is chapters 1 through 18, and we would label that redemption. So in the first 18 chapters of Exodus, we're going to talk about redemption, redeeming the people of Israel out of bondage. So God has his plan for the people of Israel, right? We know that. He, he has a plan. He's always had a plan. He will always have a plan. And that plan was directly connected to a promise that he had made to Abraham, and it had to do with the land. So, so God's promises to the people of Israel are, are centered around and connected to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so for 400 years, they've been in Egypt. And for some portion of that time, we don't know exactly how long, they've been slaves. They've been in bondage. And so God had determined when he, when he raised up Moses that it was time to set them free, to bring them out of that bondage. And in this section, God is going to reveal himself as powerful. Uh, we're going to see, you know, the, he pours out the plagues. We're going to see the parting of the Red Sea. There's all these different miraculous things, God proving he is the only true God and, and he is omnipotent, um, powerful beyond all imaginings. So the three things that God tells them in that verse is, I will bring you out, I will rescue you, I will redeem you. Notice who's doing all the work there. It's, it's all God, and in and, and, and all the things we see when God is working, it's always that way. Now, he may invite us to play a role, and he's going to do that with the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites. He's not going to tell the, he's going to tell the Egyptians to get their stuff together, and they don't, but that's, that's another matter. He's going to tell the Israelites there's certain things that he wants them to do, like they're standing at the Red Sea. What did he tell them to do? Just stand there and watch what's going to happen. And then when he parted the Red Sea, he said, okay, now go across. That was his thing. He told them what to do. They were supposed to do it. So that's not all God says. So in verse 7, he says this, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the second division is covenant. So that's chapters 19 through 24. We're going to see the covenants that God makes with them. He's going to enter into this covenantal relationship. And in the idea of a covenant is like like a contract but it's it's significantly more significant than that you know, that, that's a bit redundant rick but it's it's way more you know significant than that you know the idea often the image that they would do or the practice that they would do is they would take animals and and cut them in half and the sacrifice them cut them in half and then the people that were that were in the covenant would walk between the pieces of these the sacrifices and the, the, the 
illustration or the commitment they're saying that we will keep this covenant and if we don't then we should be cut in two like these animals are so it was a big deal it wasn't it wasn't a little thing so and and ultimately this is an expansion of the covenant we're going to see an expansion of the covenant that god made with abraham two more um, i will statements in here said i will take you as my people and i will be your god that makes the israelites unique no one else did god say you will be my people um now we we as believers new covenant believers we are grafted into the 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 people of israel the nation of israel and so we are also his people in that respect as well so in this section god is going to reveal himself as holy and he is going to call upon his people what do you think he's going to call on his people to do to be holy so when you know God is holy, he's going to say to them, be holy as I am holy. And he's going to end this declaration with two more I will statements that demand a response from the people of Israel. Verse 8, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord, he says. You know, that, that, you know whenever you see that I am the Lord, we, we need to recognize that that is God putting his thumbprint on whatever it is he says. That he's saying that, you know, that's all I need to say. You know, that's, that should be all I need to say for you to just accept it and believe it and do it. And so he says that here. So the promise that God is making here is he's going to take them out of Egypt and he's going to take them into the land that he promised to Abraham originally. So the third division in the book of Exodus is worship. And that's chapters 25 through 40 and we're going to see um, a, a number of instructions that he gives a whole, whole series of these instructions many of which don't apply to us as new covenant believers but we're going to try to make the connection between worshiping god as new covenant believers in those things in all of them we can see a picture or uh, something pointing to the work of jesus christ so we're going to try to make those connections as we go through this study God expects his people to worship him. You know, it's not a desire. He just expects it. You know, and he expects it to be something they do um, in, a, in a right way. When, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he told her, you know, that, you know, that people will worship, are to worship God in spirit and in truth. That there has to be, there's a right way to worship, and, and man doesn't have a right to determine what that is. God determines that. And so we'll talk about some of that stuff as we go through it too. But worshiping god is not natural it's not a natural thing for us to do it god's way and so he's going to set up a system that teaches them how to worship him the way he wants them to and we're going to see as we go through this that you know that we're going to talk about the fact that we're not called to worship god that way we're not called to sacrifice animals if kelly was here she's going to, she would say oh amen hallelujah no sacrificing of of jasper the goat uh, that would be a bad thing I was about to go off on a tangent. I'm going to stay right here. If God's people worship God according to his desires, the way he chooses to, he is glorified. And the opposite is also true. If we don't do it God's way, God is not glorified. And because all of creation exists to glorify God, then, then we need to know what, it, what does it mean to worship God and to worship him the right way. And God's glory is seen most clearly when his people are worshiping in the way that he, 
he desires them to. And so, to be able to worship, and that's really the key for this book, that to be able to worship, people must be free. There must be an element of freedom, otherwise they're not able to worship. And that's what's going on with the Israelites. They're in Egypt. They're not free to worship God the way that, that, that they, even the way that they knew at that point, because their, their knowledge of how to worship God was pretty, pretty um, uh, primitive at that point. God is going to go through this whole process of teaching them how to do it, but it wasn't going to be possible in Egypt because Egypt's system of worship was bizarre. And, and it was, it had, they had hundreds of gods and they worshiped them all differently. And so, and not to mention the fact they had other groups there, other nationalities there where they're worshiping their gods their way as well. And so, so he was going to move them out of Egypt so that they could worship him. Because while they're under the influence of Egypt, they weren't going to be able to do it. There ought to be probably a pretty clear application for us as, as believers. We cannot worship God and be too closely connected to the world. The more connected we are to the world, the more intimate we are to the world, the harder it is it's going to be for us to worship God. And God sent Jesus to set us free, not free to do whatever we want, not free to do whatever makes us feel good, but free to worship him in a way that is right and true. So freedom, while it's important, must be connected also with obedience. And so, so we're going to see a lot about that as we go through this, God calling and commanding and, and instructing the Israelites on how to behave and how to live. So only, only when there is worship, worship in truth, can there be glory to God. That's the only way that God can be glorified. And that's what God is looking for in all of this. But before we get into this, we're going to do a little background stuff. That makes sense, right? At the beginning of a book, we got to do some of the background stuff. Exodus is a part of the book, part of the, the um, Bible that we call the Pentateuch. Anybody heard that term before, Pentateuch? It means five books or something like that. It's pretty simple. Um, it, it refers to the first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, most people have read Genesis and Exodus, even, even a lot of people that, you know, haven't done it. Most people can get through Genesis and Exodus, and then they run into Leviticus, and they, you know, like they, like their brain melts or something, and they can't seem to get through it. But um, just so you know, we're going to Exodus after we finish, and we're going to Leviticus after we finish Exodus, so hang on for that. So the, these, this book, these books, the first five books also go by other names. Um, they, they might be referred to as the law, uh, the books of the law, the books of Moses, lots of different things they're, they're known by. Moses is, is acknowledged by most as the author of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which is, I mean, it's one of those things I've always thought fascinating. I would love to, to have just known the process of how God imparted Genesis to Moses, you know, because Genesis, he wasn't alive for any of it. So how did he, how did God impart that to him? And so we can, we can, we can talk about that. We're not going to, you can make a comment, tell me what your opinion is. I will disregard, I mean, I will pay close attention to it. Within, within the book of Exodus itself, there are a lot of indications that, that 
Moses was writing it, you know, under God's direction. God was telling him to write it. Exodus 17, 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the, in the book, the book he's writing, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek under, from under heaven. Um, he also says in Exodus 24, 4 and 7, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he took the book of the covenant, read and read in the hearing of the people. And then near the end of Moses' life, he said in Deuteronomy 31, 24, so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, and he goes on from there. So Moses writes these five books. He puts them all together. They end up being placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. And so they were drawn out. They were brought out, these, these, these parchments or however they were uh, compiled uh, whenever they needed them, whenever they wanted to read from them. Many of the Old Testament prophets refer to Moses as the author, but ultimately there's one authority that settles the question for me completely, and that is in John 5:46, when Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so Jesus said he wrote these books, so I'm okay with that. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure that's all I need to know. So that was John 5, 46 and 47. There is a debate about the dating of the book of Exodus, and there are a couple of dates that are pretty common, but it's not in the scope of this study to get into all the history and all the debate about all that stuff. We're just, I just don't have, the, I don't have the patience for it. And the best date that I've, I've heard for it is around 1446 B.C. 1446 B.C. There will be a test on it later. Nobody even, just not even paying attention or something. I don't know. So, um, so most believe that it was written around that, you know, that 1446 time frame and, um, and that, that much of it was written while they were at Mount Sinai. So to truly understand the book of Exodus, we've got to start at the previous book. We've got to start with Genesis. So we're going to go through Genesis in about 10 minutes. So get ready. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, and we're going to look through this. Um, Genesis is the book of beginnings, and so we're, when we're looking at Genesis, we see the beginning of a lot of different things. It's page 1 of your Bible, in case you're having trouble finding it. Okay. <laughs> chapters 1 and 2, in chapters 1 and 2, God created everything. He created the heavens, he created the stars, the ground, the animals, he created everything, including the uh, first humans, Adam and Eve. And, and he put them, he put Adam in a garden, and ultimately he put Eve in this garden as well. And he, and he basically told them, hey, you know, you know, multiply, flourish, you know, enjoy everything in this garden, with the exception of one tree stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he warned them and told them if you don't stay away from it there's going to be trouble well we know what happened they didn't stay away from it and um, in chapter three satan slithers into the scene in the form of a serpent and he tempts 
the woman to eat, and, and he does it through a process of deception, of misrepresenting God, misquoting God, misrepresenting what God said, and she eats, and she convinces her husband to do the same thing. We know the story. We've all read it dozens of times. And then the seed of sin enters into Adam and Eve, and they immediately realize that something has changed. And the realization comes in the form of shame. They're naked and ashamed. At which point, God curses the serpent. You see that in verses 14 and 15. And he says something in verse 15 that is important for this, for this study and for really all the studies we do in the Bible. He says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is referred to as the proto-evangelism, proto-evangelon, and the idea. This is the, 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 the initial birthing of the, event, you know, the evangelism of the gospel. So the proto-gospel, that's the term I was looking for. And the idea that this is, this is where it all started. The idea that, that sin has entered the world, but God has a plan to redeal re with it. And that plan um, is to, um, through her seed, who is Jesus Christ, he will ultimately defeat Satan. And through that process, he will save us all. Somebody say hallelujah. So, so predicting the Savior, predicting the Messiah, the beginning of, the, 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 beginning of the, the, the description of the Messiah is right here in the third chapter of the Bible, in the first couple of pages of the Bible. And then we'll see glimpses of him throughout the, the time that we go. We're going to see glimpses of him as we go through the book of Exodus. And we get more and more as we get further along in the Bible. And, 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 and we'll point those out as we go. But what happens after that is after, after he, he curses them, then he does something that is odd. He dresses them. He clothes them. But to do that, he kills an animal. And, and, and this is a picture of the sacrifice that will be required for sin. That there is, a, there is a cost, there is a price, there is a penalty for sin. And, and, and what was required was a sinless innocent had to die to pay the price for sin. To redeem a sinner back to God required a, a sinless innocent. And that's why a sinner cannot satisfy God's demands for their own sin because they are, not, they are neither sinless nor innocent. And so it requires a sacrifice outside of ourself. We are going to see that God is going to make a way to, to cover over, to, to, uh, you know, to atone temporarily for sin, but ultimately the most important um, sacrifice is going to come later when Jesus comes on the scene. And so, so that's going to be an important point which begins later on into the book of Exodus in later chapters, God was going to redeem his people, but it was going to come at a great cost. And then, and then moving on through Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve have a couple of boys. We know them as Cain and Abel, and they're really 
great kids. One of them is anyway, so the other one's not so good. Um, he, Cain kills his brother. And with that, a pattern begins that we will see carried out through all of humanity, throughout all history. This idea of, of good and evil, of, of the good and the wicked, and the, you know, the, the wicked coming against the good. And that's going to continue happening. And then with that, this pattern of the corrupting of nature and the human nature continues on and on. And, and it really comes to a head in chapter 6. In chapter 6, God looks at the world and says, man, oh man, that's messed up. In verse 5 of chapter 6, he says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so we know what he did. He determined to hit the reset button. And he flooded the earth. Um, and he took, he took Noah, he took one guy, and he told him um, to build a great boat. And I'm thinking, with all the rain we're getting out here, we might have to be thinking about building a big boat too. Man, it's been crazy. Right before you guys got here, it was pouring down rain. So, so he commissions Noah to build this boat and brings two of every animal onto the ark. And for 100 years, Noah builds that boat. 100 years, he's building that boat and, and he's witnessing to the, all those around him that something's coming and that they need to get right with God. And, and, and we know that his ministry was uber successful, right? <laughs> Eight people are saved, himself and his wife, his three sons and their wives, and that's all. This is a testimony of man's fallenness, but it's also a testimony of God's ability to save his people when he chooses to. Chapter 9, continuing on, God told Noah and his sons in 9.1, he says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you know what? That's exactly what they did. And before long, the earth is swarming with humans again. And then in chapter 11, let's see if we can get there. Chapter 11, we have this interesting event take place as, as people gather to build a tower up to heaven, up to God. And God comes down and he confuses their language and scatters them to the end of the earth, which is exactly what he told them to do in the first place when he said, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. And they're talking about staying together and he's telling them to get, get out, go. And this is where one of the main characters of, of Genesis comes into play in chapter 12, in chapter 12 um, or 11, we, we see the, the, the introduction of Abram. And, and then in chapter 12, we have this, this beginning of the call of Abraham, of Abram, who will be Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That, that was the very first words that we have recorded 
that God spoke to Abram, and in it has this, these amazing promises about taking this guy out of his land who is 75 at the time and telling him he's going to make him into a great nation. Oh, by the way, his wife is barren. So how do you work? How do you do that, God? Well, we know how he did because we've read the book, right? Anybody read the book besides me? Okay, good. Good job. You know, the closest thing he had to his son was his nephew Lot, and, and he wasn't really all that great. So hold on. So they get into Canaan, and, and God makes another promise to him in chapter 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Now he's going to say that many times in, over the course of Abram's life. He's going to repeat it, and he's going to expand upon it as time goes on. And he eventually say, I'm giving you this land, and it's forever. It's not, it's not a temporary thing. It's not just for your lifetime. It's for you and your descendants forever. That's why we, as a church, believe that, that the land of Israel belongs to Israel, all of it. You know, the idea of a two-state solution is absolutely against God's will because God said it belongs to the Israelites. It belongs to Israel, no one else. And so, you know, you know we, we, can, we can feel, you know, we can feel something for the, you know, the Palestinians and others that want make claims on the land, but ultimately it just doesn't matter because God gave it to the Israelites. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And so, so, so they go into the land, and then God takes, talks to Abraham again in Genesis 13, verses 14 and 17. We're just skimming through here, just getting all the kind of the cliff notes here. And in verse 14, he said, The Lord said to Abraham, Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lot had gone down toward um, Sodom. Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Is there, as you read through that, do you sense that there is a conditional element of that? And the answer is no. You know, just shake your head no. No, there's no condition. God said, it is your land forever, not just you, but for your descendants after you forever. You know, one of the things that God, that God, that Exodus teaches us about God is that he always keeps his promises. He's going to make a number of promises. He's going to keep some of those promises in the book of Exodus, but we Genesis and Exodus, but we also see it in other places as well. Chapter 15 is one of the key chapters of the uh, book <clears throat> of Genesis. In it, God promises an heir to Abram from his own body, even though his wife is barren. And so verses five and six, he says this. Then he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness. So, so God takes Abram out, tells him to look up at the stars and you can imagine out there where there's no lights, it was probably a glorious night and you could see 
stars and, and so many, you just couldn't count them, but so many. And he says, that's, that's how you're going to be, Abram, old man with a barren wife. That's how, your descendants are going to be so many, you can't even count them. And, and the thing that is so radical here, and it says, he believed in the Lord. He believed what God said. And that was what considered that God took that and claimed it as righteous. And we're reminding us over and over again that the thing that makes us right with God is faith. Not our works, not our good deeds, not our giving, not our sacrifices, none of those things. What makes us right with God is faith. Faith based on the truth, not based on faith. You can't, you, you can't have faith in faith. You have to have faith in something that's real. And for us, we know that that real thing is the word of God. There's also an interesting thing in this same section, and it relates to our text in Exodus, so skip down to verse 12. Actually, I'm, gonna go, I'm just going to scroll down there so you don't have to actually go there if you don't want to because, you know, I'm doing all the work up here. In verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So he's basically having a, a nightmare, you know, a, a vision slash nightmare. Then he, then he, God, said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, those people in the land, and they will flick, afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward they shall come out with great possessions. We're going to see that literally take place as we go through the book of Exodus, even before one of Abram's descendants was born, before one of them was born, he predicted that there would be a great multitude of them and that they would ultimately be in bondage to some foreign nation. And we know exactly who that foreign nation was. It was Egypt. You know how long they were in Egypt in bondage? 400 years. And when they came out, we're going to get to that eventually. When they came out, they took great possessions. The Egyptians gave them anything they wanted. And so the, the Bible you know, describes it as they plundered the Egyptians as they left. And many of those things are things that will ultimately be used to build the tabernacle later on. So really cool things going on there. So God makes this prediction hundreds of years before it happens. In chapter 16, describes Abram and Sarai taking matters into their own hands. Anybody remember that account? They decide, well, it's you know this whole descendant thing is not happening fast enough. So, so Sarai gives Hagar to Abram. He sleeps with her, and they have Ishmael, and and that issue has caused them caused pain and suffering to the world ever since. Chapter 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham and confirms the covenant he made with him. And then Abraham is given the right of circumcision. We're not going to get into all that stuff. And then, then God changes Sarai's name to Sarah and says that um, she is going to have a son, which she thinks is a little hard to believe because she's an old woman and barren. And um, you know, so she laughs about it and God challenges on it. Chapters 18 and 19, God deals with wicked Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a picture that the, whole, that the judgment of the whole world is going to experience at some point. You know, it, that, that we need a Savior. The world needs a Savior. 
and and God is going to provide that Savior. And if you don't receive the Savior, you don't accept the Savior, then then the only thing left that is judgment is a picture of that. If you remember when the angels went into Sodom, they went to Lot and they said to Lot, get all your family out of here, get all your 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 daughters and your sons in laws and all that stuff out. And we went and talked to him and they mocked him and they laughed at him, they ridiculed him. And so that when it came time, the angels drug out um, Lot and his and his wife and his two daughters. What happened to the other ones? What happened to the ones who mocked him? The ones that rejected the offer of salvation. Ultimately, they faced the judgment. Chapter 21, God keeps his word to Abraham and Sarah, and they conceive and bear a son. His name is Isaac. Then in chapter 22, God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable. He asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, his, his beloved firstborn son, only son, the, 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 the one who is supposed to bring in or begin this process of, of making them a mighty nation, and God tells him to sacrifice him. God did, or excuse me, Abraham did what God asked, and in Hebrews it tells us that he did it in faith, believing that God could raise him from the dead something that as far as we know had never been done that it, that the world had never seen someone raised from the dead and yet abraham believed that if if isaac was the son of promise and god was calling him to sacrifice him that the only way that those two things could be true is if god raised him from the dead and in a manner that's exactly what god did as god sent an angel to stop him and gave him a substitutionary sacrifice and it's a picture of ultimately what God was going to do here in verse 15. And, uh, nope, that's not it. Where am I? 22, 15. I knew I was, I knew I was, I knew I had it right. I just was in the wrong place. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you and multiplying. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand and the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. Verse 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young man. They arose, went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. I don't know why I read that, but there it is. <clears throat> this is a picture of what God the Father is going to do. God the Father is going to send his own son to be a sacrifice. And, and God was calling Abraham to do it, to, to test his faith. But it was also to give us that picture of what it was going to take to, um, to ultimately save us all. Um, John the Baptist would point to Jesus and say in John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice. He is that son that God sent so that, so that the, the, the penalty, the the cost for our sin could be dealt with once and for all. Chapter 25, continuing on, Isaac, Isaac's wife bears twin sons, Esau and Jacob, and they're an interesting pair. Um, Jacob was a schemer, 
and eventually schemed himself to the place where he had to run for his life from his brother because his brother was planning to kill him. And then in chapter 29, Jacob ends up in the area of where Abraham's, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham originally came from and God providentially brings him to a place where he meets the love of his life. Beautiful story there of, of Jacob meeting Rachel, one of those neat stories in the Bible. Rachel is the daughter of Uncle Laban, and Uncle Laban, interestingly, you know, if, if, if Jacob is a schemer, Laban wrote the master course of scheming, and so he, he's scheming like crazy, and he tricks Jacob into working for him for seven years and with the promise of Rachel, giving Rachel to him as a wife, and he then tricks him and gives, gives him Leah instead, and then throws Rachel in for another seven years. And there's a beautiful picture there. He, he did the seven years, and it was as if they were nothing to him, because he was so in love. Love. <laughs> so anyways, Leah starts having babies. Rachel's not having babies, and so Rachel gives, gives Jacob a concubine, one of his concubines. She starts having babies, and then, and then Leah gives Jacob her concubine or maid or whatever they were, and they, you know, and they start having babies, and then eventually Rachel has a baby. And about, the, about 20 years pass, and um, Jacob ends up with four wives and 11 sons and decides it's time to go home. And in chapter 32... Jacob has this radical encounter with God where he wrestles with God. And to me, that's one of, the, one of the more fascinating scriptures in the Bible as Jesus, Jesus, Jacob is, is wrestling with God. And, and you know, we, we, we can wonder about that. The Bible doesn't give us enough information to make a lot of, you know, determinations but we know what happens and at that point um, God changes Jacob's name to Israel and so when we speak of Israel we're speaking of of this man Jacob who's also called Israel and when we say Israel we're also referring to Israel's 12 sons the nation of 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 those 12 people on the way to um, Canaan uh, Rachel who is pregnant with with Jacob's 12th son, um, dies um, giving birth to Benjamin. And then in chapter 37 is when things really start really heating up in relation to what, in relation to what we're trying to get to here in the book of Exodus. As, they're, as they're there, Joseph um, ends up being Jacob's favorite son, and he's not hiding it from anybody. He, he you know, all... All the other brothers know that Joseph is the favorite son, probably the heir apparent, even though he's the second youngest of the brothers. And, uh, the, and, and we can tell that at least a few of them resent it. And, and they end up selling Joseph into slavery, and they end up selling him into slavery to Egypt, or as he ends up in Egypt. And that seems odd. You know Why? Why would God send Joseph to Egypt? Well, we know what's going to happen. We know there's going to be a famine because we've read the book. You know, we read, we read the end of the book, so we know what the beginning of the book is all about. And so we know there's going to be this famine, 
You know, and the question is, did God bring the famine? Or did God just send Joseph there because a famine was coming? Yes, is the only answer I can think of. Um, yeah, he knew it. Did he, did he plan it? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't tell us. But, but God allows him to go into slavery, which is, you know, for a kid, a 17-year-old kid, that can't be, can't be a desirable thing. But God then providentially arranges the way things turn out for Joseph. He ends up in the household of Potiphar, who is a very important person in in Egypt, um, but where, unfortunately, he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and he ends up in prison. Well, even in prison, God providentially arranges things to happen so that he is blessed, and those around him are blessed as well. There's really kind of a message there to us that no matter what your environment is, no matter what your circumstances are, be faithful to God. And he, he may bless you in ways and bless those around you in ways that you can't even imagine. So just be faithful to God. So while he's in prison, the, you know, the Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer end up in prison too. Uh, we don't know what they did. We never do find out what happened. But whatever, he, for some reason, he got upset with, you know, I think he was upset with one of them, but he didn't know which one of them was guilty. And so he sent them both to prison. Um, but we'll, you know, we never actually figure that out. But God gives them dreams both these guys dreams on the same night and then joseph is is able to interpret it and you know the interpretation of the cupbearer is going to go back he's going to be restored and the baker is going to go back and have his head cut off um so you know you know similar dreams but completely different results and joseph says to the to the cupbearer hey remember me when you're back with pharaoh and the idea is hey i'm i'm here unjustly get me out of this well two years pass and, and it just so happens that Pharaoh has a dream and the cupbearer remembers, oh, wait a minute. There was this guy in prison that was pretty good with dreams. And so Joseph gets out of prison um, and, and interprets the dream. Not only does he interpret the dream, but he's bold enough to then tell Pharaoh what he ought to do about it. And Pharaoh says, hey, dude, you're pretty smart. Why don't you take care of that for me? And Joseph is put into this position where he is able to um, provide for, to protect and to save really ultimately to save Egypt from this famine that is not going to handle just just Egypt but it really covered a significant portion of the world at least Egypt and Canaan and many other places as well so eventually he's there and and his brothers show up because there's a famine in Egypt and so his brothers show up he reveals his identity to him and he eventually um, gets them to go back, get their father and come back. And the book of Genesis ends with these words in Genesis 50, 19 through 21. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, one of the things that's always fascinated me is the famine only lasted another four or five years after they had moved from Canaan to Egypt. But then they stayed there for another 400 years. And, and it does, the Bible doesn't explain why. Now, we know at some point they end up you know, multiplying to the point where the Egyptians turn on them and start using them as slave labor. But we're not really told why they stayed there in the first place. We're not, we don't know if they got direction from God to do that. 
or if they just chose to stay there. And the time that they went there, there were about 75 people that went to Egypt. And there in Egypt, they flourished. And at the time of the Exodus, the numbers, the estimates are between two and three million people came out in the Exodus. So in 400 years, they went from 75 to millions. Exodus is, is rich with the language of the gospel. And one of my objectives is going to try to show you the gospel as we go through it. And so you'll see it as we go through it step by step. Um, and we'll understand that even though it deals with thousands of years ago, and it deals with um, um, situations and circumstances and religious things that really don't apply to us directly, there's an application to in all of it. That, you know, and I've said this before, that you can find Jesus on every page of your Bible if you look for him. And so what, that's one of the things we'll be doing. We'll be looking for Jesus as we go through these things. You know, G, the, the main message I believe that Exodus teaches us is that God wants us to worship him. But to worship him, we need to be free. And for us as, as modern New Covenant believers, you know, the, that we're not here, at least right now, we're not afraid of being, you know, taken away into slavery, right? You know, that, that's probably unlikely for us. It still happens. And unfortunately, it still happens, you know, to people in America. But the reality is most of us don't, aren't going to have to deal with that. And so the, the, the deliverance that we need is we need to be free from the bondage of anything that can take hold of our heart. And it can be sin. It can be... You know, it can be wrong thoughts. It can be you know, wrong relationships. There's all kinds of things that can, that can hold us in bondage. And God wants us to be free. In John 8, 36, Jesus said, If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And the greatest expression of freedom is when we worship God in spirit and truth. When we just worship him, we do it the right way. And we do it within the freedom that God has given us. Um, it brings great glory to God. And so we're going to talk about that quite a bit as we go through it. So anybody want to actually get into Exodus now? <laughs> you didn't expect me to jump right into it, did you? Okay, good. All right, Exodus 1. Turn to Exodus chapter 1. The book of Exodus is not just another book of the Bible. As a matter of fact... I don't think there are any just just book of the Bible. Every book in the Bible is there for a reason. It's trying to communicate something about God. It's trying to communicate something about his kingdom. It's trying to communicate something about us in his kingdom. And we need to understand that. You know, many people view the Old Testament as though it, it might be interesting, but it's not relevant. And um, I think that's a very unfortunate um, attitude to have. Um, especially if you spend any time in the New Testament and realize how often somebody is quoting out of the Old Testament. So if the New Testament writers thought the Old Testament was important, so should we. Not to mention the fact that um, we're told in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. Anything that God breathes out, anything that God inspires is something we need to know and need to understand. And so we're going to see as we go through this study that it is relevant to our lives today. It is the gospel message in the Old Testament. You can find the gospel message in the Old Testament. It's not as easy to see as it is in the New Testament, but it's in there, and we need to look for it. 
uh, Philip Ryken said this, a complete understanding of the gospel requires a knowledge of the Exodus. You're really not going to understand the gospel completely if you don't understand the book of Exodus. And so it's going to be really important that we get this book and get it right. And that's what, that, that implies to us that we can't, we can't, we can't get it. We're not going to really get what the gospel is all about if we don't spend time and, and understand it. Maxie Dunham said this, speaking in objective terms, it, the Exodus, records Israel's journey from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land of God. But it is also the picture of our own spiritual journey out of the world of bondage to sin into the freedom of forgiveness and the full inheritance we have in Jesus Christ. You know, God created you to be free. And the world is trying to put you in bondage. And we're living in a time and a culture now where, where you know, they're subtle, you know, not always subtle, but our culture is trying to, to, to control people. Um, it wants absolute total control over people. That's not God's way. That's not what God wants. And so we need to recognize that God calls us to be free and, and we should take every opportunity to do that. So our key verse for the study of, of Exodus is Exodus 20, verse 2. Exodus 20, verse 2. Let me bring it up here. In Exodus 20, verse 2, it says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So this is found in that section of scripture that we refer to as the Ten Commandments. And so it's one of the key things. It's one, in one of the key sections of the book. And so once we get to the Ten Commandments, I'm sure that's going to be great fun. The Lord is our God. And that's one of those things we need to recognize. He's not, he's not the God of Israel. He is the God of Israel, but he's not just the God of Israel. He's not just, you know, almighty God. He, we, we always need to make it personal. That when we're thinking about God, we're thinking about him as my God. That, that he's not the God of my parents. He's not the God of, you know, America. He is my God. Now, he is the God of, he's the God of, God of the whole world. So ultimately, we need to not forget that. He is our God. And he brought us out from the, the kingdom of darkness. We talked about this yesterday at the, at the, the first John Bible study, that he, that he conveyed us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his love. And he did that, does that through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are translated from one place to the next, and it's instantaneous. The moment we receive Jesus Christ, we're out of the kingdom of darkness, we're in the kingdom of his love, and we, and we are delivered to be free. And we should always be striving towards freedom, more and more freedom, because ultimately that's how we're going to be able to worship God. We're going to worship God in freedom, and if we're not free, then we're not going to be able to worship God the way that we're called to. And that doesn't mean we're... we're you know, we're, you know, living on the street, doing whatever that we want. You know, it means that we don't have anything holding us back from loving God the way that he created us to in whatever circumstance he's placed us in. And you can be in, in, you know, like Joseph in a prison and still, and still be more free than anybody, anybody around you. And, and so it's, it's a spiritual thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mental thing. We need to be free in our spirit, in our hearts, in our minds, and free, especially from our sin. 
He took us out by the blood of Christ, out of that house of bondage, and he's cleansed us of all our sin. So as I said earlier, that there's three parts to this book. Part one, chapters one through 18, uh, talk about redemption, describes God's work to buy his people out of slavery. Part two, chapters 19 through 24, is the covenant. God establishes a covenant with the newly redeemed nation of Israel and then gives them the law. And we'll talk about the law. We'll spend a lot of time with that. In part three, chapters 25 through 40, he's he's going to talk to them about worship. He's going to talk to them about building this tabernacle and all these different things that he's going to do. He's going to talk about the sacrifices, you know, and how to do it. And and it's very detailed. I mean, sometimes nauseatingly redundant details. But it's all important. And we need to understand it as best we possibly can. Each of these three parts speaks directly to our Christian faith. All of us have been redeemed. All of us are in a covenant relationship with God, and all of us were created to worship God. So in all of it, we're going to find and we're going to see how God wants to work. So God is going to declare to them, especially at near the end, how he wants to be worshipped. And it's my prayer that as we go through this study, that we will that we will grow in our freedom in our worship that we'll be able to worship god with more and more freedom that we won't that we won't be bound up by our wrong attitudes or our fears or our our whatever that's holding us back from just letting go one of the things i I talked to david about in for worship is what my desire for worship is is that, is that he would lead us into a place where we can abandon ourselves to worship. We just let go. And we, we just, we just you know, in the act of singing, we just let, it, just, just, just let worship happen to the best of our ability. Now, that should manifest, that should, that should communicate out in lots of different ways, and, and we need to not, not you know, just limit it to just singing, but we ought to abandon ourselves to serving. We ought to abandon ourselves to study. We ought to abandon ourselves to prayer. All of these things ought to be in the sense of just absolute, just letting God be God in all of these things and not holding back anything from him. That's my desire as we go through this, that we would be free to worship. And not that just we'd be free, but we do it in a way that glorifies God right? So let's actually look a little bit at Exodus. We're not going to get very far today, but we are going to get a little bit. We're going to go a little bit. So Exodus 1 verse 1. Think I'll get past verse 1? Yes, I will. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So the Exodus is a defining moment of Israel as God's people, delivered to worship him. So they're delivered, and they start out as 70 persons, plus the ones that are already there. And so, so with them, they form the nucleus that will ultimately become the nation of Israel. Verse 6, 
and Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. God had promised to do this very thing. When, when, when he told, told Abram, I'm going to make you a mighty nation and, and so many that you can't count them. They're going to, before too long, we're going to see that the Pharaoh looks at all these, all these Israelites running around and they say, this is a problem. If they wanted to, they could, they could wipe us out. And, and, he, and he's got a little issue with that. He's, he's threatened by them. If you remember in Genesis, you remember, remember Genesis 46.3? Come on. So he said to them, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt. That, that is God speaking to Jacob. For I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. So he's saying, go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid to go down there. Yeah, and holding the hand on your eyes means that, you know, after you die, he's going to close your eyes, whatever that means. Uh, but you know, you're going to go down, but you're also going to come back. He didn't come back alive. Um, they brought him back after he died. And ultimately, he's talking about ultimately all of the people. Um, God had even told Abraham, we saw that earlier, how long they're going to be there, 400 years. Um, and, he, and it's, I mean, literally, we don't know specifically exactly how many, but it's pretty close to 400 years if you do the math. God made promises to the people of Israel. And God is faithful to keep his promises. When? Always. He's always faithful to keep his promises. Hebrews 10, 23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is faithful. God made promises. He's made promises, made promises to Israel. He will keep his promises. And he's made promises to us. In 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. I cannot read that without being blown away by it. Exceedingly great and precious promise. He didn't say just promises. Didn't just say, you know, precious promises. Didn't just say great and precious promises. Exceedingly great and precious promises. Like, I mean, come on. Aren't, I mean, did he just run out of words he could have put in there? Probably. And, and, and here, and it goes on. It's not, that's not even the end of it. He says that through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, that you may be partakers of the divine nature, that you might actually be able to experience something of the nature of God. Wow. How do we do it? We do it by living in the promises. We have to live in the promises. We have to know what those promises are, and we walk in faith and obedience in those promises, trusting that God is faithful. He's always faithful. If he made a promise, he's going to keep it, and all we have to do is just keep walking. Just keep going. You know, to us, it's up to us to study the scriptures, 
to identify those promises, to discover where they are and what they are. And they, became, they can be found all through the Bible. Here's just one, Psalm 103, 11 and 12. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. His mercy is great. That's not even the best part of this one. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When we come to Christ, we, re, we repent, we confess our sin, we receive Jesus Christ our Savior, he takes our sin so far away that it is impossible to find them again. They're gone. They never can be found again. We can walk in absolute freedom that, that, that there is no guilt, that we, that we can have the confidence to know that I can go to God right this very moment. I can go to God. And you know what we say when I get there? Welcome. Welcome, child. And, and not based on my merit, because you all know me well enough to know that I, I, I'm a messed up thing. But based on the finished work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness that covers me, I literally can go into God's presence. And, I don't, and, and my sin, God is not going to bring it up. He's not going to think about it. He's not going to talk about it. He's not going he, to judge me for it. You know why? Because he already judged Jesus for it. So there's nothing for him to do except to love me. I love that. These are the kinds of promises. When we receive them, we accept them, and we believe them, they set us free to worship. I, I, all I can do is just, when I think of those kinds of things, it's like, oh, God, you are so good. All of our sins are gone. Philippians 1.6, being confident this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. How many of you are finished yet? None of us are finished. But God's going to keep that work going. He's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep working on us until we are finished. And that's good. God's not done with us yet. God's not done with me yet. So please be patient. Come on. Stop picking on me. You know what he's going to be done? Is when we're like Jesus. Then two similar promises. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can a Christian be lonely? Not if you believe this verse. He is always with us. We can be a human kind of lonely, but not, not that kind, not the kind that despairs, because we always have Christ. Jesus also said, I am with you always. How often is always? All the time. He's always with us, even to the end of the age. We're not at the end of the age yet, so where is he? He is with us. Now, no matter how far you might feel you are from God, he's right there with us. No matter how messed up you might be, no matter how wrong thinking you might be, no matter how sinful you might be, he's right there with you. Not going to leave you. And his spirit is working on you, bringing you back to that place. Why? Because he made you a promise and he's going to keep it. It would violate God's very nature to break a promise. And he can't do that. God had promised to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. And then here in Exodus 1-7, he, he does that very thing. And they, they grew, they, they, again, all these words, they're fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty. 
and the land was filled with them. How many of them were? A lot of them. God keeps his promises. And, and the radical thing is that that promise is not done. That's one of the most remarkable things about the Jews, that no matter how horrible the world acts towards them, they keep multiplying. I mean, they just keep on going. You know, we have a Holocaust, six million of them are killed, and, you know, and there's like, you know, 25, 30 million of them now. They're, they just keep growing and multiplying. Why? Because God made them a promise. He said, I am going to do that. I am going to multiply you. You know, the people of Israel have never, never stopped being a large people group. Not since then. Not since the Exodus. They have never stopped being a large people group. They've been dispersed. They've been, they've been persecuted. They've been, you know, you know, holocausted. You know, all kinds of things have happened to them. But they've always remained a people group. No matter how much people have tried to annihilate them, God keeps them. He keeps a remnant. And then he multiplies that remnant out again. This reminds us again of another of the reality about our faith. When the people of God flourish, what does the enemy do? He comes against us. And when he comes, then he comes against us, the reality is, is that they can't stand up against God. They can't, they can't stand up. And that if we will stand in his promises, then we also will be able to go through it, get through it. Verse 8. Now, there arose a new king, and you could write Pharaoh there if you wanted to, over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. So it's been 400 years, and we can understand how over after 400 years that, you know, that the government forgot the good that somebody did. Can, is, that, is that hard for anybody to believe? I don't think it, I don't think it takes 400 years anymore. It takes a couple hours and they forget. Wherever God's people are flourishing, Satan is in the background scheming to hinder them. That's just, that's just the reality. That we always have to keep our eyes open for our enemy. He's always around. He's always scheming. We're not, we're not looking for him under every bush or behind every you know, tree. But he's there. He's around. And he's doing stuff. You know, new king. You know, it's, it's interesting. One of those things, and I, I'm, I'm going to comment on these kind of things regularly. He's not named. He's Pharaoh. In fact, there are four Pharaohs referred to in the Torah, in the Old Testament. None of them are named. The most powerful men in Egypt, and in some cases at the time that this is going on, the most powerful men in the world, we don't hear their names. You know, you know this, is, this is one of those areas where it's difficult to line up this thing because many people wish that we had a name. Because we had a name, we could line up the archaeology and the history and all of that kind of stuff. You know, lots of people are named in the Bible. And um, if God had thought it was important for us to know the name of this Pharaoh, what would he have done? He would have named him. In fact, I think there's an important truth in this. The players in God's drama are not as important as the God who's writing the drama who's organizing it. And sometimes we get caught up in some of these details that really aren't that important. They're not that necessary. Like, who is this king? My response is, who cares? He's been dead for thousands of years. 
And if God didn't think it was important for us to know his name, then I don't care what his name was. He's little more than an extra. The most powerful man in the world at the time, and he's little more than an extra in God's plan of redemption for the world. So this new king comes onto the scene, and we're going to have to wrap it up here in a minute. And that means things are going to change. And one thing never changes in life. You know what that is? Things are going to change. The reality is, is no matter how long we live, things will never stay the same. You know, and some people that really bothers. Kelly's one of those people. She doesn't like it when things change. She'd rather have things be the same. Sorry, dear. That's just not the way that it is. It's been hundreds of years since the Pharaoh, you know, his right-hand man, Joseph, comes in. He's the number two guy in the nation of Israel, saves Egypt, Egypt, saves Egypt from this famine. And, and this new king just looks around at these Hebrews and says, okay, you guys are a problem. And without any recollection of what a Hebrew did to save his nation. Okay, we're going to stop there for tonight. Um, so we'll pick it up in verse 9 next week. And just so you know, I, I don't have a plan to finish chapters or anything like that. I'm going to go straight through. So if I, you know, we, so I would encourage you read ahead into chapter 2 because who knows? Maybe we'll get all the way through chapter one again into chapter two. So, any questions? Okay. I don't see. Let's see if I can see any. No, that's not what I was looking for. Nope, 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 nope. Okay, I don't know what that's doing, so I'm not going to mess with it. All right. No questions, and I'm going to go ahead and pray. You guys are mad because I didn't make cookies. I get it. I get it. Okay. I get it. I understand. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this night. I thank you for the study. I thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. We thank you, Lord, most of all for what your son did for us. As we, as we have redemption, we, have, we are forgiven for our sins. And, Lord, as we, we talked about near the end of this time, about those promises that you've made to us, Lord, and that we can, that you've created us to be free in whatever circumstances we're in, even when our circumstances are not, are not, um, they don't have the appearance of freedom. Um, you've called us to be free in whatever circumstances we are, and that in that freedom we can we can trust in, we can rest in, we can walk in, we can believe in your promises, and there have the the joy that comes from that and the hope that comes from that the strength and the peace that comes from holding on to your promises and, and living in your promises even when um, the world seems dark and rainy all around us i thank you lord for these your people those that are here in person those that watched online and i pray lord that you would bless them in a mighty way that as we take this time we go out from this place we do so taking the gospel of jesus christ with us knowing that he is the only hope that this world has and that nothing else really matters. And so we thank you, we praise you, we love you, and we lift this night up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our freedom to worship God in the book of Exodus. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. 
If you have any questions or there's anything we can do to help you with that, please don't hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to connect with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying with you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus. Jesus.